Today we're going to continue our study on the book of 1 Corinthians. And today we'll be focusing on chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And I've titled the message for today, Divine Admonition. In order to understand the context of chapter 10, we need to go back to chapters 8 and 9. And I've repeated over and over that this one particular issue was a particular issue that was relevant to the church in Corinth, but also at the same time, it was an issue that was happening everywhere in the Roman Empire. The churches everywhere were probably going through the similar type of struggles. Because the issue has to do with food sacrifice to idols, and this was a common phenomenon in those days. When you uh, worship a pagan god, you don't just come empty-handed. You come with sacrifice. Even biblically speaking, in the Old Testament days, people brought sacrifices. Even in Jesus' days, people brought sacrifices to the temple. And so when you bring animal sacrifices and sacrifice them to the idols, what happens to the meat? The meat has become consecrated unto that pagan god. And so people are struggling over this issue. But apparently in the church of Corinth, there were those who were very enlightened and they were liberated in their spirits, realizing food is really nothing. It doesn't draw you closer to God or it doesn't cause you to be far removed from God. Food is just food. Idols are really nothing. They are simply figments of people's imagination. Pagan gods are really nothing. What is something is that as Christians we believe in one true God. The triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what mattered. And so these Corinthians who were enlightened by this, they felt like, wow, we have an understanding about divine mystery of things that other people are ignorant of. And they became sort of haughty and arrogant about their conviction. Interesting thing is, when Paul addresses this issue, he does agree with these people that idols are nothing. Food sacrifice to idols are nothing. If they have been consecrated to pagan gods, and you find the meat now, certain portions of meat being sold in the meat market, you can purchase them and consecrate it back unto the Lord. And you can sanctify that meat. And so, that should not be a problem. But what Paul did say was this. We do have freedom in the Lord, freedom of conscience, to eat the meat that has once been sacrificed to the idols. But there are those who are weak in their faith, weak in their conscience. They feel like the meat has been tainted. The meat may even be demonized. And there was all kinds of superstitious notions regarding meat sacrificed to the idols. And so they dare not go near the meat. And certainly not to the temple, even if their past friends would invite them, go there and celebrate with them. And so what does Paul say, what does Paul advise in a situation like this? He says, though... You are free in your conscience. 
though you are enlightened in your spirit, though you uh, have no hang-ups about the meat, but for the sake of those who are weak, restrain yourself. And Paul says, if my eating of this meat causes those who are weak to stumble, then I will never eat meat again. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that we as Christians, we have freedom. We have freedom in this spirit. We are not bound by legalism anymore. We're not bound by superstition anymore. But that freedom is not to be used in a way that would cause stumblings of others. In other words, our freedom must be accompanied by restraint and control and self-denial. And he gives a personal example that he himself is an apostle and he more than anyone has the right and the freedom and authority with which he can exercise that free spirit that God has given him. But he says, I'm not going to take advantage of that. I know that you owe me because I'm an apostle. I have birthed you, the Corinthian church. But I'm, going, I'm not going to take advantage of you by asking you to support me financially, even though I have all the rights. And then he goes on and on in chapter 9 about how the apostles have special rights to receive support from the church for the works that they're doing. But at the end of that, Paul says, but I'm not going to take advantage of that. I defend all the ministers of the gospel to receive support from the church, to financially be provided for, and not to be taken advantage of. And I could exercise that right myself, but I deny myself of that right. Why? Because if that's going to be an issue of me freely delivering the gospel and propagating the gospel, then I would not allow that to happen. So I would deny that privilege and the right to receive support from you so that I may preach the gospel freely without charge. Why does Paul restrain himself? He says that I do it for a gain. I don't just restrain myself because I'm an, I'm an ascetic, because I believe in the discipline of self-control. No, that's not the reason. The reason is because he has a purpose. The whole idea of restraining himself is that he wants to share the gospel with others. He wants to be a good witness. He wants to bear good testimony unto others. And he doesn't want his opportunity to be closed before the sight of others. And therefore, he will do everything in his power to reach out to them, accommodate to them. To the Jews, he will be like the Jews. To the Gentiles, he will be like to the Gentiles. To those who are weak in faith, he will be weak like them. So that he may gain them for Christ. And then at the end of that message, in the latter part of chapter 9, he talks about this analogy of a runner running the race and a boxer fighting. And he takes this analogy from the athletic event that was held every two years in Corinth. And this is Isthmian game, second only to the Olympic Games in those days. And he says, just like an athlete would engage in training himself and focusing upon the prize, 
and mastering oneself so that he will at the end be accountable to the prize giver, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to operate like that. And he's talking about his resolve, his determination not to lose that prize. And what is that prize in the Lord Jesus Christ? I think the prize is, first of all, gaining the praise and the commendation from the Lord. But I think secondly, also, that prize is something very evident. That is the gospel. Through the gospel, he's going to liberate people who are in bondage in this world. Now today, he gives another example. But this time, it is a sort of a negative example. Last week, I presented his personal example. It was a positive example. But today, he's going to give a negative example. And he's going to expound on the same theme of how we should not allow our freedom to be taken advantage of. And so we must learn to restrain ourselves in the process. Okay, so let us read chapter 10, verses 1 to 5 together. And uh, we'll talk about this negative example that Paul wants to present to us. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So this example that uh, Paul is presenting to the Corinthians has to do with the whole history of Israel, summarized, especially their exodus experience and their wilderness wandering experience under the leadership of Moses. And Paul says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What did he mean by this? Cloud. It has to do with the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire that accompanied the Israelites. It led them all throughout their 40 years of journey in the wilderness. But it also had a way of covering them, protecting them. Remember when the Egyptians were chasing after them? The cloud that was in front of them, leading them, now suddenly moves and, and protects them from the behind and puts a wall of protection against the, the Egyptians. So the cloud is covering them from the top, covering them from hot sun, and at nighttime, it was a pillar of fire, so giving them light and warmth. And it was a cloud that would lead them in their journey in the wilderness. He's talking about that, that cloud. And when he's talking about the sea, he's obviously talking about the Red Sea that divided, that made way for the Israelites to pass through. And it was sort of like a wall of protection upon them. It was sort of like a covering. So he uses this as an analogy of baptism. And he says, it's like this. They were going under the cloud. They were going under the water, so to speak. And the cloud and the water would cover them and protect them. And what does all of that symbolize? It symbolizes the presence of the Lord around them, protecting them and covering them. So you have been baptized into Moses, that is under Moses' leadership. 
into God under the cloud and in the sea. Then he says, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And you remember that the Israelites were provided bread in the form of this miraculous substance called manna. It just happened that they were sustained by this supernatural manna that they were able to eat and sustain themselves for 40 years in the wilderness. And when they needed water, at times God would open up watering wells. But at the very beginning of their journey, God actually opened up a rock. Remember? And at the end of the journey, He opened up the rock once again. So Paul is saying that the Israelites were provided water all throughout their journey. But the symbolism here is that the, even the rock opened up to them and the water gushed out to them. And then according to the Jewish rabbinic tradition, there's this saying that the rock actually accompanied them. They didn't know what they were saying, but it seemed like miraculously another rock would open up in the desert. And at the very end, of course, this huge rock opened up and provided water for the Israelites. And so he uses this as an analogy of Christ the rock. And that Christ is the solid foundation that had undergirded them had provided for them, that had protected them, had led them and guided them. In other words, God was there like solid rock to sustain them and to provide for them. And so he's talking about all these blessings that came upon the Israelites and more than anything, the forgiveness and mercy of God, his long patience with the people of God. He's talking about the blessings, but what happened at the end? In verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. We know that story of tragedy that happened to the Israelites, that that entire generation perished except for Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses was not able to enter into the promised land. And then he gives these illustrations of the type of judgment that came upon the people of Israel, because they started sinning and rebelling against God in the wilderness. Let's look at verses 6 to 11. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverie. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And he illustrates these four types of sins that the Israelites committed. And actually, the Corinthians were committing the very similar type of sins. There's a perfect correlation between the sins of the Israelites in the wilderness, and as a result of that, they perished in the wilderness. And the Corinthians, they were committing a very similar type of sins in Paul's days. 
And the warning is obvious that they could perish because of that. First sin is that of idolatry. The Israelites, they made this golden calf and they worshipped this golden calf at the very beginning of their wilderness journey. And, and then there was a reverie, there was a, a sort of licentious uh, celebration regarding idolatry. And when the Corinthians were hearing this, they could probably make some kind of connection because in Corinth, it was filled with all these pagan gods and their temples. And people were committing all kinds of idolatries. And oftentimes, that idolatry was related to sexual immorality. There were temple prostitutes who would commit fornication with the visitors. And there would be all kinds of sexual immorality. And Paul is referring to Numbers 25, where the Israelites committed the sin of fornication with Moabites and the Midianites in the desert. And then there's another sin. Paul says, testing Christ. Well, obviously, he's using the term Christ here to talk about uh, testing of Yahweh, because Christ actually is the Yahweh of the Old Testament is Christ of the New Testament. So they were testing Yahweh. And how were they testing Yahweh? They were testing whether God will be long patient with them and tolerant with them. And if God is truly merciful and faithful and they are the chosen ones, God will be found faithful to sustain them. And because of them constantly testing God, not trusting God, God sent poisonous serpents, started biting them, and they were dying in the wilderness. And then the final sin, perhaps is the greatest sin of them all, is that of grumbling. They are constantly grumbling and complaining. And the interesting thing is we Christians, when we see the sin of idolatry, oh, no way, I would never do that. Or sexual immorality, no way, that's bad, bad sin. Or testing Christ, you can't do that. But when it has to do with the complaining, grumbling, we make light of that. Our negative attitude, this kind of like <sighs> constant complaining, grumbling. But that is actually the death of Israel when they started complaining, grumbling, because then their hearts will become hardened towards God and towards the leadership of Moses. And they are constantly looking back to the days in Egypt when they ate all this good food, cucumbers and garlic and, and all that. All the spices that they had in Egypt. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians that as a result of that, and particularly the revolt of Korah and his company, they all perished. God slaughtered all of them out in the wilderness. Well, the Corinthian church was engaged in all of these types of sins, and they were able to identify with that. Then, Paul says, in verses 12 and 13, this amazing, amazing statement, which uh, you could almost kind of, you know, cut it out and paste it on the wall. Because this is one of the most practical 
verses that I know in the entire Bible. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is profound. He starts out by saying, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He's talking to the Corinthians, especially those who are elitist-minded. And they thought they were more spiritually enlightened. And that became a form of pride for them. And so they had all this presumption. You know, I'm safe in the Lord. I'm free in the Lord. I'm enlightened in the Lord. Nothing can touch me. Nothing can faze me. And they had presumptions. And Paul is saying, don't be so sure about that. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul is talking about the need for humility and vigilance in spirituality. If we ever think we're safe because we have been placed on the pedestal somewhere, oh, I've really risen in rank and I've come thus far and I have years of experiences and I've been endowed with so much spiritual blessings, we take pride in that. Paul is saying, be careful. Your foundation may be shaky and you may fall off of that pinnacle at any time. So always stay humble and always stay vigilant. Don't fall asleep. Don't stay passive. Don't be complacent. Don't settle for the things of yesteryears. This is a present and the future is about to come and it takes a lot of vigilance. That is, we need to Stay awake and watch so that we don't fall. As some of you know, for the past uh, few days, I've been kind of struggling with uh, this uh, balance issue. And uh, it has to do with the, my inner ear. And, uh, and I had uh, the problem with vertigo, you know, where I felt dizzy and I couldn't find balance. One of the tests that I had to do was see if I could walk in the straight line, you know, and see if I could be alert and be focused. And I was off in all of that during the time of testing. And so the doctors, they had to make some adjustments to my head so that the, the deposit of, uh, I don't know the technical thing, but, you know, the calcium crystal has to be kind of placed back into the original position, so to speak. And they were maneuvering my head to, so that I, I can find my balance back. But in the process, in the past, I would say, past two weeks, I've been preoccupied by this whole theme of balance and equilibrium. You know, just a simple walking. You know, it is a, a miracle that we are bipedal creatures who walk on two, two feet and everything is balanced. Did you know that every step is a balance? You know? Funny thing is when the doctors told me to walk, I, got, I started getting very anxious. <laughs> I, I was like, you know, like an old man, could, couldn't even walk. You know, when I'm, I'm not conscious of that, I could walk so naturally. 
But the thing is, everything has to do with balance and equilibrium. If we lose that, and if we lose that in our spiritual life, in our relationship with the Lord, we can lose everything. So many people are out of balance, out of equilibrium in their spiritual life. Some people are like heavy yesteryears. Oh, I had such great anointing of the Holy Spirit. In those days, you, you should have seen me minister in power. But what about now? And what does the future hold for me? There's got to be some kind of equilibrium. If I've done it in those days, I must do something significant today that's relevant for today. I can't just live off of yesteryears, the memories of that. That's out of balance. And some people, they think that if they just focus on one type of spiritual discipline, somehow that's going to compensate for any of the lacks in the other areas. For example, I read the Bible all the time, but I don't pray much. Or some people pray a lot, but they don't read the Bible much. And some people are really good at their personal training, but they're not really good in community life. And they think, I'm really good in this, at least. I have a handle on this. I, I mastered this. And they pride in that. They prize that. And they forget Satan knows their weaknesses and they're going to touch upon their weaknesses. So we need to wake up to this reality and strengthen the weak areas. Try to bring some balance to this. More and more I get older and I learn more about my physical body, which is wearing down. And I, I look at what's happening inside, what's happening with my uh, physical movements and so forth. I realize everything has to do with all these parts coming together and creating the whole sense of balance. And that's so important that we need to really have this sense of balance. And then Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. He uses the term temptation here, but in Greek it's the word perosmos, and it's better to translate that term not as temptation, but testing. Why do I say this? Because temptation places the focus on the enemy so much. The enemy is always trying to make me fall. The enemy is trying to destroy me. The enemy is getting in the way. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then it's not so much the temptation, it's the testing. Because on God's end, He wants me to go through this trial so that I can overcome that that I can become stronger as a result of that. I become more refined and more pure as a result of that. He wants me to find my equilibrium once again because of that. For example, when I was struggling with my ear problem, I could have said, oh gosh, another difficulty, another suffering, another trial, another waste of money on this, waste of time. I'm getting old and I could have just grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. But something inside of me said, this is not so much a temptation, it's actually testing from the Lord. Because God wants to teach me something through this. And He taught me so many things through this one experience. And He was encouraging me, Daniel, 
I'm allowing you to experience this so that you can identify with so many people, especially the elderly, who have issue with balance. They're so afraid to even take walks outside because they, they think they're going to stumble and fall. Now you can understand what they're going through. And so by you learning how to gain your equilibrium back and, and through a certain type of therapy and treatment, you can counsel others, you can advise others, you can lead others to wholeness and healing and restoration. There are three things Paul teaches us about temptation. In this statement, once again, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. In other words, temptation is inevitable. And temptations is common. All kinds of temptation is common. But when we go through the temptation or the testing, we think that we are the only ones who are going through that. That's the whole thing about suffering. People who suffer, they think that they are the only ones who are going through this. Why, God, why is God picking on me? Why, why is God allowing me to go through this? But the thing is, Paul is saying, whatever you're going through, it is common to everybody. Maybe the degree of that suffering or that difficulty may be different, but people in this world have all experienced that. You're not the only one. And I realized that even with my ear problem, when I visited the doctor's office, he had all these files, like the entire you know, bookshelf filled with fires of those people who are suffering with vertigo. And you know what? Immediately that comforted me. Did you know that? When I saw <laughs> that so many people are suffering with vertigo, I said, wow, that is pretty comforting. <laughs> that was therapeutic itself. Wow, I'm not the only one. This is a common phenomenon in this whole world. In the city of Kuri, all these people to this one doctor, they crowd his office you know, to receive treatment. I'm just one of them. Second point is this, that God is faithful to help us and strengthen us in our times of testing. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He knows what we can bear. He knows what we can tolerate. He knows our experiences. He knows our flaws. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. God knows it. See, God knew how much I could bear. I remember the first night when I personally diagnosed that I had a problem was I was trying to imitate something off of YouTube and they said, try this and you'll know right away whether you have vertigo or not. So I, I tried that one particular pose and immediately the whole world started whirling around me and I go, oh, but I thought I was going to go crazy. Right there and then I got so nauseated, I threw up and I was like going crazy. I said, how long can I endure this? Oh God, if I had to endure this for an hour, I think I would have died. I would rather want to die. That's how excruciatingly painful it was. But God knew that I could tolerate that. So it is said that vertigo, if it's true, true vertigo of the type that I experienced, then uh, it only happens for maybe 10, 20 minutes at most about an hour or two, 
but then it dies down. It dies down. God knows exactly where we are regarding temptations or trials, tribulations, and God knows how to test us. Remember, it's not Satan coming at us. It's God allowing even Satan, using Satan, as Martin Luther would say, as a tool to test us, to improve us. So God is obviously in charge over all of this. Third point is this. God will always provide a special way out of our situation. If it gets to a point where there's no way this problem, this issue can be solved, the Bible promises that God will provide a way out. Paul says in verse 13c, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The term for way out here is in Greek, ekbasis. And this is equivalent to the term exodus. In other words, the people of Israel, when they confronted this vast sea and they had Egyptians right on their tail, and, uh, and God says, now go through the sea. This, even the sea gave its way. And they were able to walk on the dry ground to the other side. And this is the experience of Exodus, you know, exiting out of Egypt. Okay. Of course, they had to travel a number of days to arrive at the sea. They had to exit out of Egypt, but then they had to cross over through this Sea, and the sea gave way. Now, let me ask you, how many of you truly believe that there is a way of escape for us? No matter how excruciatingly painful our situation may be, how impossible that situation may seem. I think this verse itself is a stumbling for so many Christians. Most people that I talk to, they do not believe in this text. There was a time when I did not believe this text either. I think this is an exceptional case when God might do it, but other times He does not. He does not provide a way out. He says, you die. Okay? You suffer. You experience hell. And He'll just leave you at that. No, I don't think so. As a parent, when I'm training my, my children, and Anna's here, and I can talk to her about this too. When I'm training my child, and I want the child to go through some difficult things. Times of testing. That's how they get strong. That's how they get wise. That's how they figure things out. Okay. So I lay some problems, difficult problems before them. But I always know how I can usher them into a way that they can escape. So I remember, maybe this was the, one of the problems in the olden days, but me training Sarah in a really rugged way, I used to um, teach her self-defense. And what I would do with Sarah, I know some of you might think it was child abuse, but just listen, listen to this and hear me out. I would get her into a certain type of grip, a tight grip. 
I said, Sarah, I want you to come out of that. <laughs> and she said, no, Daddy, I can't, I can't. She almost want to you know, give up, and she's crying. I want you to come out of that. So what I'm doing is I'm applying enough pressure, but I leave enough room so that she can bail out. There is a way, but if she gives up too prematurely, she'll never learn the lesson. But then oftentimes I'm not able to go through with that training because my wife would stop me in the middle of it and just say, are you crazy? There's a child abuse. And so I said, okay, forget that. But if I could have it my way, I would train my child to that extreme whereby the child says, I can't, I can't, I can't. But then there's a moment where I make way, like the Red Sea opening up, and, and she's able to escape. Maybe we parents and we leaders in the body of Christ, we need to become more wise in training our people in excruciatingly uh, difficult situations. But then we got to know how to make way for them, make way of escape for them so that they'll be able to handle this when it gets too difficult, too impossible. Now, all these teachings, all these exhortations from Paul, they have a way of giving us hope. See, if we don't know this word, then when we're going through sufferings and trials and, and we know that God is testing us, we'll always feel like we'll never measure up. And there are only those few, maybe certain few who will figure it out and make it. But rest of us will give up. But if we know these principles at work beforehand, it's like a man who sees the light at the end of the tunnel. A tiny little uh, pin light. At the end of the tunnel, I know that if I continue walking this way, I come to the light. And the Word of God is like that tiny little pinhole light that is given to us. And God says, I have everything under control. You're not the only one who's going through. I'm actually training so many people in the body of Christ in this area. And I will be faithful. I understand exactly who you are. It's not like I don't understand. I understand. And listen, there's always a way out. There's always a way to solve that problem. You know, I don't know about you, but Esther and I, we went through a, a lengthy season of training in all different types of areas. And one of those trainings was finance. There were literally times we had to really, really pray for miracle to happen on a monthly basis. Especially when there was a financial crisis in America and, and at the end of that, we basically packed up everything and came out to Korea. We had to sustain ourselves for about, for about two years without any salary. And it was during that time, we, God would show us how to make our ends meet. It's impossible this month. There's no way we're going to bottom out. We're gonna, uh, we, we're going to uh, capsize. How are we going to survive this? And then there's a way to figure it out. You pull from here, you pull from there, you get it from here. Sometimes miraculously somebody will send us a check. And that's how we survived for about a year and a half, about two years at most. There's always a light at the end of the tunnel. I realized 
And Esther and I, we have to remind ourselves in our tight situation sometimes, we say, you know what? God caused us to survive that season. And He brought us here so that we can die now? No, it can't be. If we survive that ordeal, then we must be able to survive this ordeal. And next ordeal. And on and on and on. That's how we come to this point. And that's why it's important for us to remember what we have gone through. How God gave us victory during our times of struggle and suffering and difficulties. And how God taught us the way, way out of those situations. And we survived each time. We are survivors. And so we should never give up. Because God is training us. And He's training us to a point that He wants us to figure out what the name of the game is. What this is all about. Instead of being just left in the dark and dwelling in hell. Amen. Amen. I don't know whether this was a positive message for you or a negative message, but I guess what I'm saying is God knows what He's doing. When He puts us in the dark, He puts us in a difficult situations, and we feel like oh, there's no way we're going to be able to make it, make it through this month. I don't, and Jung Jin probably thinking, I, I don't know whether, I don't think I can make it through this semester, you know, as he's starting out at Acts. I know already that's going to happen. I, I guarantee you that's going to happen because you're going, to, you're going to be going through that testing time. And Jung Jin, I, I want you to be reminded that you survived up to this point. And there are times when you went through similar things like this. And you're going to be reminded like, oh, no, this is deja vu all over happening again. At my age, can I handle this? And you're going to have all sorts of doubts. And you think that Satan is coming at you with all kinds of you know, attacks. But don't be mindful of Satan. Instead of thinking of temptation, think of it as testing of the Lord. That God is testing you. And He is going to show you how to solve that problem. How to come out of that situation. How to make that happen. You got to trust that. And you got to also trust that after years of experiences in the past, that you become mature. There's something that has grown inside of you. You, know, you have been strengthened. You have become wiser. You may be even more capable than ever before, but you have to flex that muscle to see whether that works or not. And that's how God trains us, I believe. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.